Our scripture reading this morning is 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17, through chapter 4, verse 6. That reading may be found in the Pew Bible on page 965. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, unhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Keep your Bibles open, please, and turn with me to the very first book of the Bible, to the book of Genesis, and open with me to chapter 1. If you didn't bring a Bible and would like to use one of the Bibles that we have either in the pews or in the seats in the uh, fellowship hall, please be my guest to do that. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, please take that Bible home with you to have as your own. Genesis chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, 
plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind and God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Let's pray. Father, we ask that through your Son and by your Spirit, you would work in our hearts today. Cause us to believe. 
to sit under the word, not over it in judgment, to receive it. Give us ears to hear it. Do your miraculous work for your glory among us today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Sometimes a book's opening perfectly sets up the entire rest of the book. C.S. Lewis's The Voyage of the Dawn Treader begins this way. There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. (laughs) What a setup that line is for the entire rest of that book. From that one line, Lewis tells us that here's a boy who's a real stinker, who's almost deserving of so horrible a name as Eustace Clarence Scrub. And indeed, as you read the rest of the Voyage of the Dawn Shredder, spoiler alert, Eustace's transformation by Aslan the Lion from a terrible dragon of a boy into a boy that's kind and selfless and helpful to those on board the Dawn Shredder serves as a central plot point for the entire book. The opening of that book gets us ready for everything that comes after. This morning, we have the privilege of considering not only the beginning of the book of Genesis, but the beginning of the whole of the scriptures, the beginning of the whole of the only book God ever wrote, and C.S. Lewis's opener ain't got nothing on God's. So as you listen this morning, listen for how it is that God opens his book. Listen for what it is that the opening of the Bible sets you up for. Do you know how it is that by God's design, the Bible's very start is designed to reveal everything about how everything came to be, including you, and how you are to live? That's all found as the Bible opens before us today. And so let's consider these things together. The Bible begins with this very simple sentence. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That phrase, the heavens and the earth, is for the writer of Genesis, Moses, as we talked about last week. That's shorthand for everything. This is like Moses saying, in the beginning, God created everything. What this means is that you can't rightly say you believe the Bible if you reject that there is a God who created the heavens and the earth. You can't in any meaningful sense claim to highly regard the Bible's teaching if you reject the truthfulness and the historicity and the accuracy of Genesis 1.1. We confess it in the Apostles' Creed, don't we? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. The writer of Hebrews helps us to see that part of what it is that we come to believe when God grants us saving faith is that God created the universe by his word. Here's Hebrews 11.3. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was made 
was not made, rather, out of things that are visible. Genesis 1-1 is telling us that God created everything from nothing. If the phrase, the heavens and the earth, is shorthand for everything, and God is said here to have created the heavens and the earth, then it follows that there's nothing He didn't create. He is the uncaused cause of everything. Nothing, nothing, no matter or space or time, no thing except God existed prior to His creating everything. And Moses is telling us, under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, who we see as an eyewitness to these events, that creation isn't just God forming and fashioning matter that has eternally existed. No. God created the matter that he later formed and fashioned. It's important for you to believe in what's called ex nihilo creation. Ex nihilo comes from the Latin for out of nothing. It's important for you to believe that God created everything out of nothing, It's important for you to believe that because the Bible teaches that there was nothing prior to creation, only God, the uncreated one, only God, nothing and no one else. Only God is eternal. I was studying this text to preach to you and I noted that Moses makes no mention of how God got here. Moses feels absolutely no burden at all to explain how God arrived on the scene. And that's because there's nothing to explain. God never got here. He's always been. He alone is eternal. Everything else that is, the the angelic realm, people, animals, plants, planets, stars, were at one time not God, on the other hand, has always been. He alone has always been. It's no wonder that when he revealed himself to this Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3, remember what Moses says? He says, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Do you remember what God said to Moses? Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. What a perfect name for the only eternal one, the only one who has always been. I am. Now in your sermon outline, I've called Genesis 1 verse 2 the setting of God's creation of everything from nothing, but We have to acknowledge that by Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, creation had already begun. I take Genesis 1-1 as a summary statement for the whole record of God's creating work in 1-1 to 2-3. But by chapter 1 and verse 2, God has already begun creating the earth, hasn't hasn't He? Because we have something. We have something rather than nothing. Because chapter 1, verse 2 tells us that there's vast waters, what's called the deep And when God first began creating the earth, the earth's first status was formless and empty. What the English Standard Version says was 
without form and void. And I think the rest of the text that we have before us today causes us to conclude that the state of the earth as we read about it in chapter 1 and verse 2 isn't as things should be. It's a formless, empty void of a globe that consists only, it seems, of vast waters over which the Spirit of God, God the Holy Spirit, hovers. But by verse 3, God begins to form creation. Beginning at verse 3, there's light. Do you see that? And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Notice how the light comes to be. It comes to be by the word of God. And God said, let there be light. And there was light, the Bible says. God speaks, and there's light. God speaks, and something comes from nothing. God speaks, and light comes from where there was no light. And it happens through the word of God. And that's incredibly important for us to to embrace. And the New Testament tells us why. So keep a marker in Genesis chapter 1 and turn with me to the Gospel of John chapter 1. The Bible's divided into two big sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the New Testament starts with four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And it's John that I'm asking you to turn to. The Gospel of John, chapter 1. Follow along with me as I read, beginning at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. I'll stop there. John, you can see, has Genesis on his mind as he writes the opening of his gospel, doesn't he? How does he begin? In the beginning. John knows where that comes from. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. And John says in these verses that the Word who was in the beginning was with God and was God. And then John says here in chapter 1 and verse 3 that all things were made through Him. That is, all things were made through the Word. And without the Word, without Him, was not anything made that was made. John couldn't be clearer. He turns this phrase over on itself just so that there are no loopholes, no ambiguities. If something was made, John says the Word of God did it. And who is the Word? Skip down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word, John tells us, is God who became flesh. The Word is God who had glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, Father, full of grace and truth. And who is it who is God in the flesh? Who is God the Son from the Father? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And so with the light that John chapter 1 shines on Genesis chapter 1, we see, don't we, 
that it's the Lord Jesus Christ who is God the Word. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who speaks and causes creation to come into being. Back in Genesis chapter 1, the Lord Jesus Christ speaks, let there be light. And there was light, Moses writes. You know, it's one thing just to say, let there be light. Any fool with a voice can do that. It's another to say that and then have light come into being. Only God can do that. And so, going back to Genesis chapter 1, we see that it's the Word of God who speaks light into existence. For the first time of seven times in this chapter, in verse 4, we're told that God sees His creation as good. The light is separated from darkness. God calls the light day and the not light that remains he calls night and there was evening and there was morning the first day. Now I'm going to stop here and address the question of the length of days in Genesis chapter 1. Some faithful Christians who take the Bible seriously and who regard it in its entirety as the inerrant, infallible, wholly inspired Word of God, argue that the days in Genesis chapter 1 are not 24-hour periods. Rather, they say these days in Genesis 1 are long periods of time, ages. Those who would make an argument like that, I think, are looking for an interpretation that would make sense of the fact that, for example, we can see light that it appears to us has traveled from billions of light years away. They conclude, therefore, that the universe has to be billions of years old if we can see light from stars that are billions of light years away. That's one of the things that has folks looking for some explanation of Genesis 1 other than 24-hour periods. Those who hold to this what's called the day-age theory are also interested in looking for an interpretation of Genesis 1 that would account for things like the fossil record and the geologic record and other issues that arise in the scientific community. And so this day-age theory that I think there are faithful Christians who hold is one theory that would seek to explain Genesis 1 as referring to something other than 24-hour periods. There are others who have concluded that Genesis 1 is arranged topically, that the days mentioned here aren't 24-hour periods, but are rather literary devices for arranging these topical categories. These days are kind of hooks to arrange these topics of creation on. That view is called the framework view or the framework hypothesis, and there are godly men like Bruce Waltke and Meredith Klein who've advocated for it. And there are other views that you sometimes hear people espouse, like the gap theory. There's a really long gap between Genesis 1-1, Genesis 1-2. There is a view called theistic evolution. I'm not going to go into all of those here. I'll say to you that I take the days mentioned in Genesis 1 as 24-hour periods for the following reasons. First, because as I read the Scriptures, it doesn't seem to me that you can have death not just spiritual or even physical death of humans, but any death prior to Adam's sin. 
Paul says in Romans chapter 5, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Yes, that death spread to all men, but it also spread to all of creation because Paul's going to go on to say in Romans chapter 8 that creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Why? For the creation was subjected to futility. Paul says in Romans 8 that the creation is in bondage to corruption, that creation is groaning until the redemption of our bodies at Christ's return. Paul helps us to see that sin not only impacted man, but all of creation. And so for animal fossils, for example, to have been formed prior to the creation of man because of some huge epoch of time when animals existed prior to humanity requires that death be a part of God's very good creation before Adam and Eve sinned. And I don't see that the Bible lets us come to that conclusion. I don't think you can have any death and therefore any animal fossils prior to the creation of Adam and Eve and Adam's sin. A second reason I think Genesis 1 is talking about 24-hour days is because none of the scholars I've seen arguing for ages and ages of time for the first creation are also arguing for ages and ages of time for the new creation. Every scholar who takes the Bible seriously believes that at Christ's return, there's going to be a cataclysmic destruction of the current cosmos by fire. And then there's going to be a restoration of that destroyed cosmos into the new heavens and the new earth that you read about in Isaiah's prophecy and in John's revelation. But the scholars who write about the new heavens and new earth see it coming about essentially instantaneously. Why then does this creation in Genesis 1 require epochs? Third, I'm suspicious of a Bible interpretation that's driven by science. Now, let me, let me speak clearly to you. Science and the Bible will never contradict when we finally can do science correctly and aren't doing science with depraved minds. Christians don't have to be afraid of science at all. Not until the 1800s when Critical scholars began questioning everything about the Bible. And more to the point, after the publication of Charles Darwin's On the Origin of Species in 1859, was there any material movement among Christians to interpret Genesis 1 as anything except referring to 24-hour days? I could quote early Christian writers to make this case all the way up to modern times, but I'll let the Westminster Longer Catechism be representative of what I mean. The Second London Baptist Confession, not surprisingly, says something similar to this. Catechism question 15 asks, what is the work of creation? And here's the answer. The work of creation is that wherein God did in the beginning, by the word of His power, make of nothing the world and all the things therein for Himself within the space of six days and all very good, end quote. And Westminster, again, is representative of Christian thinking from the earliest time up till the 19th century. Sometimes you hear the phrase, settled science. There's hardly any such thing. What science claims to know changes all the time. Again, I'm not 
advocating that people who hold fast to the Scriptures need to have some antagonistic relationship to science. Not at all. When science is done well, it squares with the Scriptures because the God who created the world that the scientists examine and experiment with also inspired the Bible. I'm just saying in interpreting, we mustn't let science drive the car of Bible interpretation. And whether or not Genesis 1 is talking about 24-hour periods when it talks about days isn't a scientific question. It's an exegetical question. We're trying to interpret Scripture here, and that means that the rules of good exegesis have to govern how we arrive at the answer of what a day means in Genesis 1. And then let the chips fall where they may. And so because there's nothing in this text and in the Bible's later interpretation of this text, including what a week in the life of God's people is supposed to look like, that persuades me to read into what the word day means here, I conclude I'm, in, I'm to interpret the word day plainly as a 24-hour period. Now again, faithful Christians can disagree on this, but there's my case for why day in Genesis 1 is a 24-hour period. There's a lot more that could be said about all that. You're desperately hoping I don't do it. But I don't think Moses wrote Genesis 1 so that we'd spend a bunch of time talking about how long a day is. So we're going to move on. After day 1, God's Word creates again in verse 6. By God's Word, an expanse, your Bible translation might say firmament, is created to separate those waters that we saw back in verse 2. And so what results is what we refer to as our sky, the area above the surface of the earth. And with the creation of the sky, there's day two, evening and morning. Then on day three, verse nine, God's word directs all this water to gather together. And what appears is dry land. And this isn't the last time in the book of Moses that God's going to command water to part and leave behind dry land, is it? The dry land God calls earth, and the gathered waters are called seas. And God sees the goodness of the earth and seas, and then by His Word, He creates plants. He creates plants with seeds and plants that would bear fruit, and God says that is good in His sight too. You might think it's strange that God would create plants on the same day that He creates earth and seas, but remember that Plants are inextricably linked to the earth. Plants grow up from out of the earth and remain anchored to the earth in a way that animals and humans don't. So it makes sense for plants to come about on the day that the earth comes about. And so, having created land and seas and plants, there's evening and morning the third day. So having formed the earth in days one through three, now God is going to fill it, again, by His Word and His Spirit. First, beginning in verse 14, He fills the sky, the sky that He created on day two. And He does this, verse 14 tells us, so that there would be a separation between day and night. So that there will be bodies in the sky that give us signs and indicate seasons and days and years. We know he's referring to the sun and the moon. The sun fills the sky in the day. The moon fills the sky at night. And throughout the Bible, we see the sun and moon referred to in passages that 
that speak to the signs that can be read by those heavenly bodies. That's why God says he's created them for signs. But the sun and moon also indicate seasons, don't they? Sunlight changes with seasons. Sunlight changes even as a day progresses, as a year progresses. Just as God says here is his purpose in creating the sun and the moon. The moon gave the Jews the basis for their calendar and for their year, much as the sun does for us. And God sees that the sun and the moon and the stars were good. And so with the evening and the morning, there's day four. Now, don't be confused that there's light on day one and a sun or a moon not until day four. Does God need a sun or a moon for light? Not according to Revelation 22. John says there that in the new heaven and new earth, night will be no more, and they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. Beginning in verse 20, God's word continues to speak and to create from nothing. By God's word, the seas created on day three are now being filled with fish and with sea creatures. And the sky that's created on day two is filled with birds. And God blesses the creatures in the seas and in the sky to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill the seas and to fill the sky. And with evening and morning, that's the fifth day. And then in verse 24, God's word, the Lord Jesus Christ, speaks And the animals that roam on the earth are created, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And God sees that the creation of the animals is good. And now, beginning in verse 26, the stage is set for the piece de resistance of creation, the creation of mankind. Unlike with any of the rest of the created order, we're given here insight into the Godhead's communication prior to mankind's creation. Do you see it? God says that man would be made in our image. That's God speaking. Part of what that means is that man would uniquely among all creation be able to reason and to communicate and to exercise dominion over creation. And we see that dominion role in the last part of verse 26 where the Godhead says, Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God creates mankind as vice regents over creation. That means our dominion over creation is a derived dominion. It comes from God who has total dominion. Our dominion is to be a lesser dominion than His. He is all sovereign. We are sovereign only as far as He's created us to be sovereign under Himself. So my fellow members of the mankind community, I want you to embrace your unique role, your God-given role relative to the rest of creation. Our culture can try and persuade us that Mother Earth would be a whole lot better off without people on it. That people only bring harm to the planet. 
No, according to God, we're to mediate his sovereign rule over the earth. We don't have to apologize or feel guilty about subjugating creation to our rule. And that includes the animal kingdom. You are created to have dominion over animals. I think our culture's efforts to blur the lines between mankind and the animal world has done a grave disservice to God's design for humanity. Animals are, by God's design, beneath humanity. We are to exercise dominion over them. Animals aren't to be regarded like children. And as much as animals can endear themselves to us, and they do, what a kind gift from the Lord. Any culture that prosecutes cruelty to animals and at the same time works to preserve the ability to murder human life is a culture that is wickedly insane. In verse 27, we see a poetic statement about God's creation of mankind. Look at it with me. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Three times in this little poem, God is said to have created man, lest anyone forget from whom mankind comes. Twice, our being created in God's image is stated, and then we read that God created mankind male and female. Now again, Moses knows nothing of the gender insanity that would mark our day. He isn't trying to address that here. But whatever else this verse means, you ought to conclude that by God's design, there are two and only two genders according to the God who created us. And you ought to conclude that he's the one who assigns unalterably gender to mankind. And any other view is in direct contradiction to the God who created you. In verse 28, God speaks a blessing on mankind. That blessing is connected to being fruitful and multiplying. For reasons we're going to talk about in just a little bit, God then blesses mankind to fill the earth with his image bearers. And then he issues a command in the last part of verse 28 that's in keeping with what we saw the Godhead say to each other back in verse 26 about why mankind was created. Look with me at verse 28. He commands mankind to have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every, every living thing that moves on the earth. He commands mankind to subdue the earth. And then in verses 29 and 30 of chapter 1, we see the very generous nature of God, don't we? He instructs man that to him was given all the plants that yield seed and all the trees that bear fruit for food. Everything from the plant world that would be good for food, the man is given by God for food. Similarly, God provides green plants for the animals. We tend to put plants in the category of living things, but the Bible doesn't regard plants as living things in the same way that people and animals are living things. Man and beast eating plants is a part of God's very good creation, whether you like salad or not. And then in chapter 1, verse 31, God sees everything that he's made from day 1 until day 6, everything, and he sees that it is very good. And with evening and morning 
There's day six and the completion of the creation of the heavens and the earth. As chapter 2 opens, Moses states that with the end of day six, the heavens and earth were finished and all the host of them. And then God, having finished his creating work, does something that I think is supposed to land on us as a surprising thing. He rests. And so the seventh day, from which the Hebrews get the word Sabbath, is a day that God makes holy because it's on the seventh day that he rested. Now, there's a wrong way to understand God resting. God didn't rest because he was exhausted. He doesn't get exhausted. It was not strenuous for him to create a universe that appears to us to be more than 90 billion light years across. No, God rested because he was done. His creating work was done, so he ceased his labors. The Hebrew word that's translated rest here is used elsewhere in the Old Testament to refer to the completion of the construction of the temple in Jerusalem that was built during the reign of King Solomon. I think that helps us to understand what is the rest that's going on here. The construction of God's cosmic temple, the whole of the heavens and the earth, is complete after day six. So on day seven, God rests. And understanding the universe as a cosmic temple created by God to display His glory is exactly in keeping with what the Bible says creation is doing. Do you remember what King David writes in Psalm 19? The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. In Revelation chapter 4, before the throne in heaven, this praise is offered. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for, because. Why does he receive glory and honor and power? Because you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. The false gods during the time of the Old Testament and the New Testament, all of which have Satan as their source, they had temples built to them for their glory. You can go and visit the ruins of these temples today. Those temples are destroyed by time and by war. What exists of many of the ones that are mentioned in the Bible are ruins. But God's temple is the universe. And what does God mean to fill His temple with? He means to fill it with His image. The temples of the false gods were filled with their images, with statues and with idols of those false gods. Satan doesn't create anything new. He rips off. He counterfeits. He perverts and twists God's creation. And so the false gods and their temples are just cheap knockoffs of the one true God's cosmic temple that he puts his image into, mankind. And then he says to mankind, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He's saying to us, fill the earth, fill the universe, fill my cosmic temple with my image bearers, fill it with my glory to reflect my glory. And that's what God is resting from. Having built the universe, he rests from his created work. Work, not because he's exhausted, but because he's done. 
And that's the rest that he calls his people to in his son, who is himself our rest. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 4, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. And so God rested on the seventh day from his work. His work is done. And the writer of Hebrews says that whoever has entered God's rest, that is, whoever has repented from his sins and placed his faith in Christ, has also rested from his works. Brothers and sisters, that's a rest that we've begun to experience now as we trust in Christ's work alone to bring us peace with God. And it's a rest that we'll experience fully in eternity when our struggle against sin, our work against sin is done. God rests and he offers that rest to us by means of the one who said, come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Well, how is it that we apply Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 2, verse 3, to our lives? Well, first, you must believe what Genesis 1 says about the creation of the world. That is, that God the Father, through His Word, and by His Spirit created everything there is from nothing. And you must believe what the New Testament teaches us about creation. Namely, that it points to new creation. The Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians what our sister Beth read for us earlier. Paul writes that God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness. We read about when that happened today. God's word says, let there be light. And there was light. God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Do you see what it is that creation is heralding? It's heralding that God, through His Son, the Word, and by His Spirit, is able to bring the light of eternal life out of the darkness of sin and death. Genesis 1 is saying to you, brother and sister, that He's able to say to dead, sin-stained souls, let there be light. Let there be the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And then there is light. And there's life. And there's salvation. That's how He saves you, brother and sister. He creates new life in you from where there was none before. He brings everything pertaining to faith out of where there was nothing pertaining to faith. The God who needs nothing to create everything takes you when you were dead in your trespasses and sins and not able to do righteousness while you were his enemy, while you were yet a sinner. And he, as Wesley's hymn says, diffuses a quickening ray of redeeming light while you are still dead in sin in nature's night. He creates new life where there was no life. And He gives you His Son's righteousness where there was no righteousness. Isn't this exactly what the Apostle goes on in 2 Corinthians to say about salvation? 
Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And how is it that all this happens? Paul answers four verses later. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The one in whom is life, John says, and that life is the light of men. The one who is the light who shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. The one who is the light of the world the one who is the light of the new heavens and new earth such that there will be no need for a son, he saves us because he entered the darkness of sin and death. For our sake, brothers and sisters, God the Father made his son who knew no sin to be sin for us, to have our sins placed on him, to have the incalculable debt For our sin placed on his son, Jesus entered the hellish night of sin in our place so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Genesis 1 is singing the song of salvation, of new creation, and the voice of the Father and the Son and the Spirit are all heard. The Father sends the Son. The Son offers perfect obedience, including his death, in our place on the cross. And then by God's Spirit, we're awakened to believe this good news and to trust in the Lord Jesus. And then we who believe become new creation. Hallelujah. I know that in this room, there are some parents whose children seem a long way off When you're not clothed and in your right mind, you might think they're too far gone. I imagine that in this room there are some of you who in various venues we've called to faith. For years and years, you've just been circling the airport of coming to faith in Christ. And God hasn't given you grace to repent and believe the gospel. And maybe when you're not clothed and in your right mind, you could think, There's no hope for me. I'm saying to you that this God can cause everything to come from nothing and that that's how he has saved any of us who believe. And so my brothers and sisters, you keep praying for your lost children and for your lost friends and for your lost coworkers, for those who live around you who haven't even shown any interest in the gospel. We don't have any guarantees from the Lord that he'll save them. But we can pray to the God who is certainly able to save them and to cause everything to come from nothing, to cause light to come from darkness. My friends in this room who are lost, don't be hopelessly lost. I'd invite you even to stop right now and in prayer to plead with God to pierce the darkness of your sinful night with the light of the world that is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He can cause you who are outside of Christ to be born again, to have new life. That's what this God is able to do, and that's what Genesis 1 is teaching us that he's able to do. Creation points to new creation. And so since that's true, my brothers and sisters in Christ, I call on you to marvel in this God, to marvel in this God who saves, who's able to make of any sinner new creation through his Son and by his Spirit. But I also call on you to marvel at this God quite apart from anything that he's done for you. I'm calling on you to be in awe of this God as we consider this morning from the text, this universe that he's created. Let's say along with David in Psalm 8, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? Brothers and sisters, I wonder, are you... Are you too busy with your little world to carve out time to offer awestruck wonder and worship to this creator God? Oh, we who believe ought to be setting the pace for this kind of worship, shouldn't we? Because this great God has sent his son clothed in our flesh to be our savior. So all creation ought to offer God this praise, but we can rejoice in how great this God is knowing that He is for us and not against us. If the God who created this universe was a tyrant, oh, the only wise response would be to go around completely terrified. How could you live with any peace in a universe that was created and ruled with unchecked power by a tyrant? But my brothers and sisters, how can you not live with peace? You who are in Christ, when you live in a universe that's been created and ruled with unchecked power by the God who gave his son for you. The God who adopted you into his family. The God who's given you his spirit to live inside you. The God who's promised never to leave you or to forsake you. The God who loves you and is pleased with you because you're in his his beloved son with whom he's well pleased. If the God of Genesis 1 is for you, brothers and sisters, who or what can be against you? Let that bring peace and comfort to you. This God being for you and not against you means you can say, not in some kind of Pollyanna, ignoring the problems of life way, but in a true, deep way, you can say, all is well. All is well. Lastly, by way of application, I call on you, my brothers and sisters, to live life as the image bearers that God created you to be. It's not your image that you're meant to reflect. It's his. And when you embrace that, that impacts a lot of decisions, doesn't it? Deciding that you'll prioritize his glory and not your own, that might change where you live, might change where you work, might change whether you're going to go for that promotion, It might change whether you decide that you're going to be known for your gift of gab and for being the center of attention or whether instead you'll decide to listen twice as much as you speak. 
living to reflect His glory as the bearer of His image by His design and not your own, that might change your schedule and your hobbies and your priorities and how you spend your money. Young people, it might decide where you go to college or whether you go. It might impact what you study and who you marry, maybe whether you'll marry. It may impact thinking about children God's way instead of the world's way. I'm just talking about living as though you're clear that you have been made in God's image and therefore by God's design are to reflect His image for His glory, not your own. You've been bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. God has populated this cosmic temple with his image bearers. We multiply that image when we see people repent and believe the gospel. And so yours is to reflect his image to the world for his ever-increasing glory. That begins with forsaking your sin and trusting in his son, but it impacts every area of your life. Whose glory are you living for? Whose image are you jealous to reflect? God's? or your own. Brothers and sisters, let's rejoice in, let's worship this God who, through His Son, by His Spirit, created everything from nothing, both cosmically and in the hearts of all who've trusted in Him for salvation from sin. Let's pray. Father, we offer You praise and worship blessing and honor because you created all things. All things exist for your glory. Father, I pray that the light of eternal life would break through the darkness of sin and death in the hearts of those who've arrived here outside of Christ. Work savingly among all of us by your spirit and your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.